The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Well, good morning and welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. And just to answer your question so you guys will quit asking me, no, I did not get an elk. All right. Well, you can send me back. I'll keep trying. <laughs> Got close, had a good time, enjoyed myself, uh, and uh, was thankful for the opportunity. Got to, uh, just, I'll have to tell you about it some other time, but it was a, a great hunt. Got back um, this week, earlier, um, or last week, early in the week, and finally they were able to repair our, our vehicle, our Yukon XL, big vehicle, and I spent over $8,000 on that thing. Yeah, that is a hit, man. Um, in this economy that we live in, uh, we are finding it pretty tough. We have seven people who live in our home, and uh, that's a lot of groceries. And groceries are really, really high right now, right? And so I know that you know what I'm talking about. You feel the pain when gas is so high, fortunately, for the most part, we don't have to drive a lot. Some of you do have to drive a lot. And it, there's a significant impact that has happened um, to us in our economy. Um, actually, even if you got a pretty good raise this last year, you're probably making less money because how much everything uh, costs. And so this, this causes some stress for me, um, and I have to navigate through it with the Lord, but it, it's, it's challenging for me financially, and um, it, can, it can get to me. It could cause me to worry a little bit, cause me to stress over things, and I have to get my, my mind right. Well, I um, logged in, or I got my uh, mortgage statement this week. And I opened it up. It was completely paid for. I'm like, I thought there was a mistake, so I call, and someone has completely wiped my mortgage out. Now, everything I just told you in that story is true, but the last part. <laughs> now, it would be amazing, okay? That would be amazing. It would totally change my life, right? Uh, so we get that. Um, and, and today, as we jump into... Uh, now, don't tell anybody. That I, I got to use that the next service. Uh, but uh, in, in Romans chapter 4, we see a little bit of this, Okay. And I told that story, that little fable I made up to help you to see that and there's something really significant happening when, when Paul is talking about um, the transaction that takes place from the gospel. Now, he's shown us uh, how people try to approach their relationship with God. Some um, try to worship God by looking at all that he has created, and they start worship the, worshiping the, the creature and nature itself. Others will um, invent their own gods um, and their own religions, man-made religions, and start to create God in their own image. So it is a, um, a, a God that they, they can accept, that they can live with, and they're acceptable to that. And so they create something uh, themselves and, and lead a lot of people astray in that. Um, others think um, that they're just better than other people. They look and they go, well, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as that person. And so I, I should be all right. It should be when I die, things should be fine. Um, and so whether it's any of those or relying on some even that would label themselves as Christians would rely on 
uh, the religious experience of Christianity as opposed to really being in an authentic relationship with the Lord. And, and so when at the end of the day, what we're learning in Romans is all we have to offer to God is belief. That's it. You can't bring anything and offer to God but belief itself. And that's why faith is so important. Everything must flow from it. And so as we get into Romans chapter 4, we've turned a corner where Paul has painted this picture. He's talked about the wrath of God. He's talked about how when people reject the truth that is revealed to them and they hold it down and suppress it, how that leads to a, a cycle of delusion. And God will give a person over to that type of thinking and and they will become very irrational. And if it plays itself out, um, often we can see it in the, um, you know, to the extreme in sexual perversion. And that's basically what Paul has done in the first three chapters. And he took in the last section and he started talking to the Jews specifically. And he's like, look, even as Jewish people who have been called of God as the chosen people of God to receive the word of God and have the prophets. Um, speak uh, the, the word of God and record it and preserve it, there's still really no great advantage. All are um, the same in God's sight. And so when we get to chapter 4, he begins to use Abraham as an example. He's like, you, you can't do anything to please God other than to believe in what he has already done. And so as he does this, he goes to Abraham, and he actually picks two people um, and he starts with Abraham, and he also uses David as an example to show that, man, it is faith. And then this was really important because the Jewish people, had ex they have placed a lot of value in, um, in circumcision because circumcision was given to Abraham. He was called to do that, and they just believed that if you, if you were circumcised, you were good to go with God. If you were not, you were not good to go. And it was a right that they saw that was given to them, and that's, what, that's how they practiced receiving um, a good standing with God. It was an observance of, of something that they were called to do. Um, now, it would be a lot like baptism today. A lot of times people look up and say, well, I'm... You ask him, well, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. And boy, I'm amazed at how many people will say to me, well, I was baptized when I was a baby, or I was baptized when I was a kid. And that's what they go to, that's the go-to story of, of their Jesus story is, is baptism. And that would be a lot like what the Jewish people were doing. Well, I'm circumcised, and so um, my family is in the right standing uh, with the Lord. And so Paul picks up kind of with that narrative and he, he's hammering away as he begins to talk to them. And he says, what then shall we say? And this is, this is Romans chapter four. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father or our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? In other words, everything that I've taught you up to this point, Paul is saying, what, what, what did Abraham, like when we look at his life, what, what would he say? It says, if in fact, Abraham was justified by works. He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, God came to Abraham, and he called him, 
Abraham was living among a pagan people who were worshiping pagan gods that they had created. Um, He was probably involved in that paganism himself. And God comes to him and calls him out of that and tells him, I want you to go to this other land and live. Leave everything that you know. Leave your family. Leave all that is um, uh, familiar to you and go to everything that is unfamiliar. And I'm going to make you into a father of many nations. And so um, Abraham, it says, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Eleven times that phrase is used in, these, in this chapter. It's a very important um, part of what it means to understand a biblical Christianity. It says, now to the one who works, he says, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. The guy works and he, he does his job, then you owe him some money. There's no gift in that. You just pay him his money. He earned what it is that he received. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So one who works, he just gets what he deserves, he gets what he earns, but the one who does not work, he says he, he's credited. When he has faith, he's, it's credited to him as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now, David is dealing with um, sin in his life. He's committed adultery. He is arranged for the murder of the woman's husband that he committed adultery with, Uriah. Um, He's living in a lie. He's completely acting irrational, yet he's described as a man after God's own heart. And the prophet of God comes to him, and when he is hammered with the truth, he does not turn away from it. He postures himself toward God, and he repents of his sin. And in that, he writes in, um, there are a couple of Psalms, I think it's Psalm 37 and Psalm 51, um, he talks about his, his repentance, like it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And if you've ever failed God, <laughs> and I have, and you go to these passages of Scripture, they will just resonate with you, man, they, they will... They will, like you can just get in them and you can see the heart of God and, and the trouble with man. And so David, in the midst of that dealing with all of that sin in his life, he writes and he says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. It's a beautiful thing that that David is writing about here. And so Paul picks back up and he says, in this blessedness only, or is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Is this only for people who have practiced that religious rite that was given to Abraham long ago? Or he says, or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? He says, it was not um, after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he says, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also 
the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so what's he saying? He's saying, look, when we go all the way back to Abraham, there were no circumcised people. There were no Jewish people. Jewish people did not exist. Abraham was the first one. He was told he was going to be made into a father of many nations. And he believed God. And when God told him that, we can look back in the Genesis account, and it was credited. When he believed, it was credited to him as righteousness. He was about 75 years of age when that happened. Uh, he did not experience or perform the rite of circumcision for another 14 or 15 years, okay? But it was credited to him when he believed. And so Paul is he's building this very strong case for the Jewish people that helped them to understand um, that it was based upon Abraham's faith in what God said that he was receiving the righteousness of God. He says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law wasn't even given until the time of Moses, hundreds of years later. So he says it's not through performing the law that, that Abraham was declared as righteous. It was simply because he believed what God said. And when he believed what God said, it was credited to him that he was a righteous person. And he says that, therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by, by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. And not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham's. It says, he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So Abraham is the first one that has faith like this. And he shows us what faith is like. It's really, really important. He says, against all hope, this is what he did. He says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb also was dead. See, Abraham was having to live a life of faith. The, the name Abram, he was first called Abram, and then he was, his name, when he received the promise, was changed to Abraham, and it means father of many nations. He lived in a on a trade route and had become a very wealthy person. The Lord had blessed him and given him favor. And people would stop there to um, water their camels and lodge, and they would, they would pay him and, and sometimes stay overnight. Sort of like if you're on a long journey, a, a place where you would stop over, um, rest up, resupply, and keep going. And no doubt they would get into conversations with Abraham and talk to him about what he did. And he says, hey, hey, what's your name? My name is Abraham. Oh, Abraham, father of many nations. How many kids do you have? 
None. Not one. 90, 99 years old and not one. And my name means father of many nations. <laughs> and so he was having to live in that, that tension of believing God, yet not seeing anything happen. Uh, being promised that he would have a land of promise, but not having that land other than just a uh, little, the only thing Abraham ever bought was a, a grave plot for he and Sarah to be buried in. <laughs> but he was promised that he would, he would have uh, land and, and, and be the father of many nations and that the whole world would be blessed by one who came through him. And it doesn't say by all the people, it says by the seed, there would be one. It was a prophecy that Christ would come. And so he was walking in that and, and, and knowing that his wife was old. But it says, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he would promise. He, had pro he was so persuaded that God actually took him through a test. And when he did finally receive the son, Isaac, God called him to sacrifice Isaac. And he's like, the promise is tied to this boy. This is the only boy that I have. And now I feel God calling me to it. And if you've ever read this story, it's a fascinating story. God never intended for him to sacrifice his son. He's teaching us about faith, that when we have faith, God provides. And so Abraham, in his mind, and, and, and you, we learn from the book of Hebrews that he had reasoned in his mind that the only way that this could work is that God must be, if I, if I sacrifice my son, he's going to bring him back to life. And so he made the journey, and he was going to do the very thing that God had asked him to do. And on the way, when they finally get there, as the deed is about to be done, God supplies a ram caught in the thicket that would be a substitutionary death. And again, a picture of Jesus coming on the cross. And, and God um, preserves Isaac. And, and so he's walking in that. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And then it says again, verse 22, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, now this is where it comes for us, the words it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And it's so, so vitally important for our faith journey, that we wrap our minds around this, that we begin to understand, and we will not fully comprehend it. Um, but the Bible teaches us in the book of Colossians that when we hear and understand grace and comprehend grace in all its truth, then we will begin to bear fruit. The kingdom will begin to bear fruit when people can hear and understand grace and all its truth. And that's what this chapter talks about. It talks about the grace of God and all of its truth. And when we begin to understand, man, there's nothing I can do for God. There is a freedom that comes in that. It's been a thought where this series was born out of, and I didn't realize I was going to learn so much about it uh, preaching through Romans as I already have, and here we're only landing in chapter 4 as I was praying one Sunday morning, and the Lord just, like, I was talking to the Lord before I would come up to preach, and sermon was all ready and everything, and I was like, Lord, what do I have? 
Like, am I going to go and be really good at this sermon today and, and teach really well, and you're going to do something? Like, what am I going to do? I have nothing, Lord. I have nothing to give you. Nothing. What am I going to do if I give everything that I have? What difference is that going to make to who you are as the creator of the universe? And it dawned on me, I, I don't have anything but faith. That's all I can offer him. Faith that he will use the foolishness of uh, the words that I preach to do work in the lives of other people. Faith that he will show me how I'm supposed to live and lead me down uh, the path and the decisions that I'm supposed to make. Just believing that God is there. Believing that God is able to do what he said he he would do. Believing that, that Jesus has risen from the dead. That he conquered death, hell, and the grave. Just believing and resting in that. And all of a sudden I come to this place in my life where it's like I can't do anything for God. And when when I realize I can't do anything for God, I can start to serve God out of just sheer enjoyment. I just enjoy serving him. Because the more I understand that I cannot do anything for him, the more that I want and desire that I have to serve him because I realize he has just done everything for me. And that's what this chapter is about, is that when we have faith, it is credited to us as righteousness. Now, there are a few takeaways that I want to give you um, that, that, I, that are really, really important in our walk, in our journey, like knowing that that we are walking with the Lord in righteousness. Like, how do you know you're righteous? How do you know that righteousness has been credited to your account? Well, the first thing that I would draw your attention to comes out of verse 5, and it is this. Jesus only justifies the ungodly. That's all he justifies. He does not justify the godly person. He says here, however, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies who? The ungodly. Their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, does that mean, well, if God credits this as righteousness, I need to go out and be as ungodly as I can? No, that's not what it's teaching at all. We already know that from Paul said that that would be a foolish way to think. and We learned that in a previous chapter. What he's saying in this righteousness, it comes from the Greek word, the word righteousness is dikaiosene, and it means the state of him who is as he ought to be. And so God looks at a person who has this righteousness, and he sees him as he ought to be. And God does not look at all humans that way. As a matter of fact, humanity um, in their fallen creatureliness and their darkened hearts that are, have been darkened by and tainted by sin, God does not look favorably at any of them. He sees all as desperately wicked. The scripture says that they are, we are enemies of Christ before we come to know him. An enemy, a hostile enemy. We're hostile to the things of God. We're hostile to the things of Christ. We are in direct opposition of everything that um, is divine. And so God has no fellowship with us. And he says to us that he comes for the ungodly. You're not a candidate for salvation until you can come to the realization and confession that you are ungodly. 
You, you can't have righteousness until you recognize I'm ungodly. I am, there's nothing good in me. If you think there's good in you, you think you're somewhat godly, and you are not a candidate for righteousness. When, by saying that I, by saying that I, you think there's good in you, that doesn't mean that I don't. That I'm not saying that you can't. You're not capable of doing good. You're an image bearer of God. You, all people are capable of doing good. We want to do good because we bear the image of God. But we're talking about righteousness here. We're talking about as God looks at you, you are as you ought to be. And if you think that there's goodness that God should see that makes you as you ought to be, you are not a candidate for salvation. It is for the ungodly that he has come. And until you realize this, what you're doing is trusting in your own goodness. You will think, well, I'm, I think I'm doing a pretty good job here. And you might compare yourself to to some friends of yours that they don't even ever go to church. At least you try to go to church sometimes, and, and you even support the work of the church. You give a little offering here and there, and, and you serve sometimes. You shake hands at the back door. You, you serve down in the kids' ministry. Surely people who serve in the kids' ministry ought to be right with God, right? <laughs> we need some people to serve in the kids' ministry. We really do need some people to serve in kids' ministry. Um, but that doesn't make you right with God. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you are righteous in your own eyes, you have no part in the Lord's redemptive work of grace. Now, we're not saying that you go, oh, no, I realize I'm a sinner. I mean, everybody's a sinner. You're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone who would say, oh, I'm not a sinner. But that's not what this is. This is a person who comes to face their sin, and they look at it, and they are broken over their sin, and they realize they're offensive to God, and they cry out from a heart of repentance and say, I'm sorry. And that is how the gospel begins to go to work in a person's life. It's a realization of your ungodliness. And I don't even think that you can come there without uh, the first the Holy Spirit beginning to woo you, beginning to call you. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes after I ascend, he said, it's expedient that I must go, that, but for when I leave, I will send the paracleti to you. The paracleti will come and he will convict the world of sin. And, and truth, and he will um, help you to remember all that I have taught you. And so the Holy Spirit first, what does he do? He convicts a person of their sin and shows them that they, are, they have no righteousness. They're not right before God, that they are ungodly. And in that, we have an opportunity that we can respond in faith. And the first thing that we can do is repent, is that we change our way of thinking. We change the way, direction of our lives. We don't even really change it. We just, in faith, know I'm wrong. Now, this is what man will not do. This is why man attacks the Bible. This is why there's such a, there's always been such a, a, a heated um, attack and a passionate attack on the word of God, because the word of God requires that a man say, I'm ungodly. 
And a man doesn't want to say that. Because as soon as a man says, I'm ungodly, and admits that he is ungodly before the creator of the universe, then that man must yield to that God who has shown him that, and he must change his behavior. And the way that that behavior is changed is not through effort, but through admission that I am wrong, and God is right, and I repent of my sin, my sinful condition. I'm broken. I'm helpless. I'm in need. And in that, God can respond and we, I draw your attention now to the second takeaway is that Jesus gives life and calls into being. Verse 17 says, he believed, speaking of Abraham, he believed the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. This is creating ex nihilo. When God created He didn't take something that was there and go, hey, I'm going to make something out of this. For instance, if I want to bake a cake or my girls want to bake a cake, as they often do and never want to clean up the kitchen, for they are ungodly. (laughs) But they must take some flour and some sugar and some vanilla and and other ingredients, and combine it. They're taking from things and creating something new. When God created the universe, that's not what he did. There was nothing. He did not take from something and create it. He took from nothing. He spoke it. There, There was no such thing as light. There was no such thing as sun. He spoke it, and it came into being. There was not a tree. He did not take a seed and plant it and watch it grow. He made the tree and made the tree to reproduce itself. He made all of the animals of the kingdom. He spoke them into existence, and then he finally created humanity, human beings to bear his image, and he created all of them out of nothing. That is... The idea, that is what is being spoken of when it says that um, he, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. What he's saying is that Paul Paul will further develop this thought in his letters where he says, we are dead in our trespasses and sin that which is not. We are not in being spiritually. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You've been born physically. You must be born spiritually. You are not in being. And the only way you can be in being spiritually is if the God, if the, God the creator of the universe, takes that from which is not and calls it into being. This is why we can look at the world and go, how can the world be so sinful? How can it be so far away from God? How can it be so immoral? Because it is not. It is desperately wicked and far from God. And and so the church, our objective is not to tell everybody that, hey, you're, you're wicked, you're wicked, you're wicked, and just always battling with them. Ironically, that seems like what I'm doing in this sermon, but... But the point of the reason to show is that you don't have to be, you are wicked, but you're not designed to be. You're supposed to be like this. And in faith, that is credited to you, not because of what you do. 
And, and when we see that and when we experience that and we understand the hope and, and, and the beauty of the good news of the gospel, we want to share it. And so people unite in the, the gathering, the ecclesia that Jesus talked about, that hell would not stop, and we celebrate with one another, and we learn from the word, and, and we help each other hear the voice of the Lord and obey it in discipleship, and we walk those things out, and it causes us to reach out, and the gathering is continued to increase as the family of God grows and people come to know Christ and the beauty of the gospel. And so it is out of nothing. It is out of death that he calls into existence a believer. The word life that is used here is the word zoopeo, and it means to make alive by spiritual power. She looks, and as that person the, the, the Spirit begins to draw that person to himself. Remember, Jesus said that Paracleti will come and he will convict people of their sin. And that is the drawing. And the person recognizes, I am ungodly. I am ungodly. I'm unfit. I'm unfit for the, for the creator of the universe. And when, when he's broken and sorrowful over his sin and repents, then the Lord begins to call that person to life. And the second word that is used there, he says, I call into being. That's the word kaleo. It means to call aloud by name to invite. This is why you hear me talking so much about each individual person must be saved. What is it to be saved? It is a calling of the creator of the universe. I don't care if you're baptized. Abraham was righteous before he was circumcised. And there are many who are, have been baptized that have zero righteousness in their lives. How are you going to get that righteousness? How do we get it? It has to be called into being. It's called aloud. It's inviting a person. It's showing them that they are ungodly. That person repents in faith. And as they receive the call of Christ on their lives, then it is credited to them as righteousness. We respond in faith and we are called into being and we come alive. We come alive and we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And that is the one thing um, that is different about Abraham than us is the Spirit of God doesn't just come to visit us. God doesn't come to visit us in physical form every so years and give us a message that we are called to believe God himself, the pneuma of God, the paracleti, he comes and he lives in me because I have come alive in Christ. I was dead. The bones that were in the valley and were dry and dead are called to life and I'm alive. And all of a sudden, all of this ungodliness that used to not bother me has started to bother me because that which was dead has come to life. I have been transformed I'm in Christ. I'm a new creation. And it doesn't mean that I'm perfect because we see that Abraham stumbled. We see that David stumbled. I can tell you with God is my witness that I have stumbled. I'm not perfect, but I am alive. And when I recognize my sin, I like to turn away from it. I don't want to turn toward it. I want to repent from it. I want to posture toward God. I want to walk in the freedom of that which I know I have become because I am alive in Christ. So I have faith. Before I was dead, Jesus has called me into being. And that which did not exist, exists. And faith is the conduit for the credit. 
Faith, faith is the conduit, like just believing. Like I, I believe, and all of a sudden, I'm receiving this. So that brings us to our last takeaway. We are to follow in the footsteps of faith. That's what verse 12 says. He says that, and he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. To follow in the footsteps of faith. What is faith? Now, what is that? You see, faith is the conduit by which I receive the righteousness. How do I know if I have faith? What does faith look like? Well, Paul clearly lays it out in verses 18 and 21 as he shows us what Abraham did. First of all, we see that against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. So the first thing we must do is even against all hope. What does that mean? It means that sometimes when we look at this, it doesn't make really natural sense because it is supernatural stuff. We're saying that we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. How could that be? We've never met a person who is God in the flesh, right? Like, we don't encounter those. We clearly can see that all the flesh we've encountered is clearly not God. Even the most... um, person that we would describe as the most, most ethical person that we've ever met, met we, we would know they're not God, but yet we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, the only one who was fully God and fully man. And we place our faith in that. And, and there's something about reason that tells us that's not, that's not possible, right? But we hope against hope because we know that as we read the word, that there is the supernatural involved in this, And that if Jesus was in fact God, then for him to die and rise from the dead is not a problem. And I hope against hope and believe that God will make a way. And that's what Abraham did. He believed in a supernatural miracle that would bring about an untimely birth of a son that would be used to multiply and make him into a father of many nations. And ultimately, he believed that someone would be born who would, who would provide a way for all humans to be right with God. So we'd look and we'd go, well, how do people in the Old Testament, how do they get right with God? How are they saved? The same way we are. The, the writer of Corinthians, or Paul says in Corinthians that they drank from the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. They were just looking forward to Christ coming, and we look back that he came, and all were realizing or believing that he will come again. And so they, they were looking for him to come in the future. We've looked back on where he has came, and all of them may have known about the promise of the Messiah, but all of them were not righteous in the sight of God. It was only those who had faith in what God said that he would provide and make a way. And so against all hope, in hope, Abraham believed that the supernatural was possible. Then what else did he do? He faced the fact that his body was dead. And that's what we have to do. You have to face the fact, if you want to be righteous, you have to face the fact that you were dead in your sins and trespasses and incapable of being right with God. You have to come to that place. 
You're not right with God because of what you do. You're not right with God because you helped your neighbor. You're not right with God because you came to church. You're just dead if you never have come to that, that realization that there's nothing good in me when it comes to the divine creator of the universe, then you haven't faced the fact. And you can never be a recipient and have faith because you don't recognize how necessary faith is for you to be right with God because you don't even think you're dead. You think that there's a little bit of righteousness in you, and if, it, if people have a little bit of goodness in them, surely God will make the right decision and let all come into heaven. And that is not what Scripture teaches. Only those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so he faced the fact that his body was dead, and we must do that. Then you don't waver. It says that he did not waver. Even though he was 100 years old, and, and, and Sarah's womb was also dead, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened. Now, what in the world does that mean to not waver in unbelief? It doesn't mean that you do, you've never had a doubt. That's not what it means. The word waver that is used here <clears throat> is the word diacrino, and it means to withdraw from one, to contend, to strive. It's separating yourself from and fighting against Jesus as God. Wavering can, could look a little bit like, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to be a part of the church. You don't have to be a part of the church. That's separating yourself from what? The body of Christ. That's a waver. Okay, and that's, that's risky. That's, that's not walking in faith. A person who walks in faith is strengthened. And so we come and, and we unite in fellowship with other believers, and we're strengthened by each other's faith as we come and unite with one another. Um, and so he says, don't waver. Don't fight against the things of God. Don't contend with God. And we see that often people will do that very thing. They fight and contend with the things of the Lord, and that's wavering. Instead, we are to be strengthened and find ways as we engage. Like, man, there, there are ways. We say, how do I get strengthened? I'll tell you how you get strengthened. Fill out a connection card today and say, I'm going to help down there in the kids' ministry. You say, well, how will that strengthen me? One, it requires a sacrifice. Well, I like being up here, Jimmy. Well, so do other people. And maybe somebody would bring some kids that they're suffering and maybe their family's about to fall apart. And you may be the very person that is serving on that Sunday when a couple is about to go through a divorce that you are ministering to their child and for the first time sharing some truth with them that helps them understand at some point in their lives that they too are ungodly and they stand in need of the grace of God. And so we all have to do our part because we're trying to strengthen one another. Sign up for discipleship. I don't have time. Well, you want to be strengthened or not? We seem to make time for all of these other things. But if we would engage in the things that strengthen us, they help us to keep from wavering. They build us up, and as our faith becomes stronger, we walk in more freedom. And that's the way the things of the kingdom are designed to work, is, is we look for ways to be strengthened. We don't fight against the things of God. We don't contend against the things of God. We don't strive with God. We look for ways in which we can walk in favor with God and, and, and understanding that this is what God calls us to, and it requires faith in those things. It requires faith. It requires faith to be baptized. And, and it says that Abraham believed, and then he was circumcised. And that's the way I believe it should follow in baptism. Belief, 
That's when you become righteous is that point, at the point of belief. You don't become righteous when you're baptized. You become righteous when you believe in faith and who Christ is, and you follow in baptism. And we could go on and on, but this is how we have faith. We're strengthened when we engage in the different disciplines. We read the word. We pray. We fellowship with other believers. These things strengthen us in our faith, and that's how we exhibit that we do have faith. And then he was fully persuaded. So what does that mean? Be fully persuaded. He says he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. I think that simply means that we are all in. Like, we're not like half in, we're just all in. Like, we, we jump over and we're, we're in this thing, man, and we put our hands to the plow, as Jesus says. He says, no one who puts their hands to the plow and keeps looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. But the person who goes all in, man, they just go all in. And they're like, man, I've made this decision, and I'm going to go all in with my faith. And I'm going to tell you from experience Christianity is one of the most miserable things you could try to believe if you are not all in. It will make you feel guilty. It will make you feel shame. It will make you feel, you'll just be beating yourself up. Sometimes you think you're right with God. Sometimes you don't think you're right with It's because you're not all in. You go all in, man, and you're like, you're walking in freedom. You're like, man, I'm, in, I'm right with the Lord. And it, again, it doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean that, that you don't stumble, but it means that you're all in. And so that when you do stumble, the Lord can speak to you and you immediately want to obey and you continue to be strengthened in your faith. And so what's the big idea? You live on credit, man. It's the only time you'll hear me say that. Live on credit. That's what happens. It says that as he did that, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. When righteousness is deposited into your account, much like we look at it and go, wow, the story, the fable I told, that someone paid off my mortgage. It's a life change. This is a greater life change. Someone has paid off my debt spiritually and they have deposited an inexhaustible amount of righteousness in my life. Believers are the most fortunate people imaginable because their sin is settled. But guilt dogs the steps of the unbeliever, while forgiveness is the sweet reward for those who trust in Jesus. Now watch what happens. Verse 25, he was delivered over to death for our sins. That is, that my sins, much like here's my mortgage, if there was a person that paid it off, my mortgage debt would move from my books to their books to bring it to zero. And so in his deliverance over to death, that's what happened with our sins. And because of that, he was raised to life. The resurrection is so important because it says that God the Father accepted the Son's sacrifice. He was raised to life for our justification. When my sins are taken from me, my account, and deposited to his account, his righteousness is now deposited into my account, and I'm free. And that's the way God looks at me. It is a debit 
and a credit. And so as we walk out this week, if, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you're able to say to this mountain, be lifted and moved out of the way. Uh, to me, like, like, first, that's about the mountain that exists within us. But as we learn that God can remove that mountain, then we start to learn how to walk in faith in other ways. We start to learn that this principle that has set me right with God is a principle that God helps me raise my children. He helps me love my wife. He helps me um, on the... Um, within my business and my career or my education or whatever it is, God cares and he helps me. He's there with me along the way because I'm his. I'm no longer an enemy. And, and he doesn't do those things. <laughs> he doesn't do those things because I'm manipulating him with my behavior and trying to get him to do those things. He does those things because he wants to. And, and, and again, if, if we get away from him, there is chastisement. There are consequences. There, there's suffering that can happen from our sin because we are disobedient. But that is all just to call us back to this place of fellowship with him. And so it is because we are, righteousness that, we are righteous that that chastisement happens. And so I want to leave you with this. Like I want you to go out this week, man, and I want you just to think, I'm righteous, <laughs> Warren, what are you going to do to get that? It feels good to stand before you and knowing all of the things that I've done that are offensive to God and have hurt other people. Jimmy Holbrook is righteous. Why? Because Jesus said I was. That's it. That's it. And that's good news, man. That's good news for me and that's good news for you. And if you don't know Jesus, I would also want you to walk out. I don't want you to walk out, but I do want you to realize you're wicked. You're just wicked. Why? Because Jesus said so. Because you haven't accepted him in faith and received all that comes with his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you for grace. We pray that we're able to like absorb it a little bit and sit in it. That we can experience the freedom that comes with it. I thank you for these folks that are here this morning, those watching online. And Lord, if there's one who doesn't know you, may today be the day of repentance where they recognize their ungodliness and confess so they might receive your righteousness credited into their lives. Give them faith, Lord, to believe. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.